Hi, I'm Lynn Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Alex Hillman. Based in Philadelphia, Alex is a marketing communications and community development consultant who works on product launching and community building strategies through 30 by 500 and Stacking the Bricks, along with his business partner, Amy Hoy, and he's also the founder of Indie Hall, a co-working space in Philadelphia, which we're going to be talking about a bit in this interview. You can follow him on Twitter at Alex Hillman and check out his website at DangerouslyAwesome.com. You can also check out 30 by 500 at 30 by 500com and Stacking the Bricks at Stacking the bricks.com and you can learn more about indie hall at indiehall.org in this interview we're going to talk about alex's background and career his professional interests indie hall and about 30 by 500 and stacking the bricks and uh in particular about audience building and growing sales something of particular interest to indie authors or anyone with a product they're trying to sell online so thank you very much alex for taking the time to be on the front matter podcast thanks for having me len uh i'm excited to be here and that was a brilliantly comprehensive and yet somehow so concise introduction of all of the wild things that I uh, I have at my fingertips. So uh, thank you and, and nicely done. Yeah, thank you for that. Actually, uh, it's uh, it's uh, uh, in researching for this interview. I listened to a, a few interviews of you online and people usually start them by saying what a challenge it is to uh, interview Alex Hillman uh, and to describe him. Uh, and so I sort of borrowed from, uh, you know, people in the past confronting this challenge. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and uh, how you actually first became interested in interested in uh, computers and technology. Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a, a very small town in Pennsylvania, about two hours north of Philadelphia. Um, and I was fortunate enough to have access to a computer fairly young. Um, I think we got our first home PC when I was maybe eight or nine. Um, and we're talking beige box, uh, you know, in the, in the early to mid mid nineties, which, you know, everyone, not everyone had a home PC then. So I had a couple of friends that had them before I did, um, because their, their parents worked in technology. I had one friend in particular, his dad worked at, um, like a local branch of bell labs. Um, and so like that was maybe the first home PC I ever touched cause they were the first friends to have one. And that was more like, playing X-Wing versus TIE Fighter video games and stuff like that. Uh, but I was fascinated by it. And when we got our first beige box computer, my introduction to computers that I would say is meaningful to my, my life today is when it, when I, when it broke it, um, <laughs> as, as is want to happen with, with, with any piece of electronics. Um, you know, I had this computer that I used to play video games and poke around and, um, it was mostly entertainment. Obviously, I was a kid, so I wasn't doing productivity stuff. But when the hard drive died and I couldn't play video games, I was kind of bummed out. Um, my dad is uh, an entrepreneur himself and actually paid his way through college fixing other people's cars. And so I, I grew up around a father who knew how to fix things. It was pretty handy. And so he I told his dad the computer broke and he said, all right, well, let me grab grab the screwdriver from the tool chest and we go down to the basement and he looked at the back of the computer and helped me take the screw, you know, those little hex Phillips screws off the back. And he looked inside and he said, you know what, son, I think this one's all yours. Uh, and kind of left me to my own devices to, to figure out what was wrong. And, um, through like literally going to the library and reading books, I figured out that maybe that clicky noise was the hard drive and, that lined up with some of the error codes on the computer and maybe I had a bad hard drive. And so I went into the local mom and pop computer shop because that was still a thing in those days. And I this uh, was probably 10 at the time. 
So this 10-year-old walks in and says, I need to buy a hard drive. And they looked at me like, what the heck are you going to do with a hard drive, kid? And I told them what I had figured out. And they said, you know, when, when you get a little older, if you want to come in after school and learn how to fix computers, we'd, we'd love to show you. Um, and I'd say that was the most meaningful introduction to computers for me was sort of diagnostics, learning it by trying it, figuring it out, sort of deductive reasoning. I didn't know what those words were when I was nine. Um, but I could kind of reverse engineer, you know, I could remove stuff from the equation and say, does that make the error code change? Um, so I was learning debugging before I knew what debugging was. Um, and that put me on a path to to be interested in you know technology, and I ended up working at that computer shop and and selling computers and selling comp computers to people who, for many of them, it was their first computer, or repairing computers for many people of whom it was their first computer, and uh, I was pretty good at it. And and when I went to to college, my thought process was I'll get into some sort of IT consulting world. I'll start an IT consultancy. The stuff I'm doing for people at home, I'll do for businesses. And so I went to uh, Drexel University here in Philadelphia with the intention of getting that education, but also having this co-op program that they they run as a big part of it. The reason I chose Drexel is the opportunity to learn on the job, not just in the classroom. And for my first co-op, I got a job at a big bank down in Wilmington, Delaware. And within a few weeks, I was pretty clear that I uh, the thing I thought I wanted to do, I did not want to do. Uh, and working at a bank was... Um, was making me pretty miserable. Uh, and you were, but, working, you were working in sort of the IT side of things. Yeah, IT help desk. Um, and so a lot of it wasn't even like it, the work was fine. It was the people, um, mm -hmm. you know, doing technical support for corporate folks who, you know, for a lot of them, the computer was a thing in the way, not a thing that they love to use. And when it broke, it was probably my fault. So I was not set up to have a great relationship with these folks from, from the jump. Um, and so the, the, one of the ways that I sort of saved that position was I, I went to my sort of co-op advisor, my boss effectively, and I said, you know, this frontline support thing is um, – it's not that I don't like the support. It's the, the people are, are, are pretty miserable. And she goes, yeah, they are. <laughs> so it wasn't just me. Um, and I said, I'm still interested in this, but if we can find anything else for me to do, it would be great. And so she teamed me up with some of the guys that did more like the network design. So I learned things like um, systems administration. They were a Novell shop. So I learned my way through Novell systems design and all these other kinds of things. Um, it, it, was a, it was a patch enough to keep me in this corporate thing for the remaining five and a half months um, or, or whatever it was. But I, I, was, I knew I was not going to come back. And it was my second co-op that um, I – had a friend who was working at a, a digital agency um, and they did, you know, business consumer websites. They were doing stuff for Campbell's Soup Company uh, and they were doing stuff for Motorola and Sony Pictures Classics, like movie websites. Like they were making websites that I would actually see the things that those websites would advertise in the real world. And it felt like a very real world manifestation of technology on the Internet. And this is the mid 2000s. And so obviously the Internet was a big thing, but it, it was nothing like what it looked like today in terms of like apps and, and software as a service and all of those kinds of things. But making things on the internet was a thing. And at that point in my career, I had done very, for all that I'd done in technology, I'd done very little programming. And part of that was because I had it in my head that programming was a, a, a math, a mathematics based thing. And obviously there's lots of that, that is true. Um, 
and I was more of a language minded person and math wasn't it. And, and obviously knowing what I know now, pro- they call programming languages for a reason. And it was in that second co-op that I fell in love with the internet and being able to write code to make a thing that worked or was interactive where you could do a thing or I could publish something and then people on the internet would interact with it and use it and it would bring them, you know, we, we built this recipe, we built one of the first online recipe databases for Campbell's Soup Company where you could put in one of the Campbell's Soup products and it would tell you things you could make with it or you could put in things that are in your fridge and it would tell you what Campbell's Soup product you could make with the things in your fridge. And one, one thing, sorry, I think I should mention, uh, so you said you went to Drexel University, but this whole time uh, when you're, you're at university and then uh, doing co-ops, you were studying, you were studying computer science. I wasn't. No, oh, no, I was. Oh, okay. I was okay. not. Yeah, I was. I was actually a, um, a business information systems major. Oh, okay. Um, so no, that's okay. So I mean, the, my my interest was again more in the sort of like technology systems than computer science and programming. At least that's how I know. I know that's not exactly how it's broken down. That was how I saw it in my head. Um, I had a lot of friends that were in the CS program, and Drexel does have a great computer engineering program, um, but they were all much smarter than me. (laughs) Um, or I should say differently minded. Um, but it was the business, the business program in my head, I was like, I'll get the business degree because in order, if I want to run a business, I learned how to run a business in business school. And that was a mistake because, uh, what I, what I realized is that business school teaches you how to run somebody else's business, not your own. Um, and I was pretty sure that I wanted to build my own thing. And so in that second co-op where I discovered, you know, I had already discovered that, you know, working for big companies is definitely not my thing. Making things on the Internet could absolutely be my thing. Um, and going to finish my degree probably wasn't necessary to do the things that I wanted to do in terms of building my own business. Um, that was when I made my first leap into the first stages of entrepreneurship where I was a freelance web developer and being out on my own and, and, um, making websites and little web products for, for people was, was sort of my first foray into entrepreneurship and, uh, as a sort of a long story to get there, but I'd also say that's a, a pretty meaningful, uh, starting point for everything that I've built today that I actually still work on. Yeah. It's, it's thank you for sharing all of that. Um, it's really, it's really interesting. Um, so uh, at your first co-op, uh, it was the people you had to interact with that you didn't like. And at the second one was where, as I understand the story, was where you realized that working for big companies wasn't for you. And I, I know you've, you've described yourself as emotionally unemployable, I think, <laughs> uh, true. In, in the past. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about that. What is it about it? I mean, I know, I know that in part working for big companies is a one of the problems that I think you have with that is not to put words in your mouth, but I actually am doing that is, is to be forced to interact with a set of people because your boss says so. Uh, and you know, I, I just learned, you know, go, one of the things you didn't like about business school was it's not training, it's training you to be run someone else's business where you're under their command. Um, is it being, being under someone else's command? Yeah, I, I think I think it's a combination of being under someone else's command or not being involved in the decision making process or not having influence over, you know, if I have the means to make something and someone else decides what I make is the thing I made actually mine. And if they can make a decision about what I'm making and that in any way uh, is something that is either counter to what I, I, I desire or believe or I, you know, now now that I've got some more professional experience under my belt, you know, it shows up in a slightly different way because I have that experience, but nothing, 
is more painful for me than somebody wanting to do something, me knowing that something will not get them the result that they want and knowing that there's a, there is a better way. There's a, a predictably better way, not just my way. It's not, it's not that it needs to be my way. It's that if your way is not going to get you the result you want, but you're, you, you can't see anything past your, you know, this is what I can, you know, this is the, and it's often for a short term gain, um, especially in big corporations, if the solution to the problem only fixes the short term problem, but not the long term problem, that really, really um, tweaks my brain <laughs> and, and makes it very, very difficult. And unfortunately, in big companies, especially, you know, in, in the last, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, quarterly returns or, or shorter matter more than the long game. Um, and so I think, that, you know, that, I think that's the dynamic that makes me emotionally unemployable is more that if somebody else thinks it, there's plenty of situations where somebody else knows better, but if somebody else thinks they know better, but it's only in service of a short term gain instead of a long term gain, I'm tend to be optimized more for that long term gain. And that schism is always going to make me somewhere between deeply unhappy um, and wildly unproductive. You know, I think I think I'm totally with you there. I actually start like shaking. Yeah. In situations like that where it's, it's a like, physical thing. Totally. Yeah. And where it's like, I know it's not one of those things where it's like questionable. It's where like you just know you actually do know that yeah. what's happening is wrong. Yeah. Um, and sometimes like for, for me, it's like that can be if someone's overestimated, overestimated my capacity. You know? Totally. Like it's not it's not about like, you know, me being right and better than other people. It's like it's just a, a full existential awareness of that. What is happening is wrong. And then when you're in a hierarchy and you're not on the top, uh, you just are, it's, there's this just, it's like a horror show. Yeah. You're just trapped in a nightmare where things are wrong. Len, uh, I think you said something like they're right. Len, I think you said something that's, that's, that's crucial is it's not about being right. I'm, I'm, I'm super not interested in always being right. One of the, the most valuable lessons I've learned as a leader now that I've got, you know, I've got team members and, and other people that I work with is, um, I'm, I'm always in service of the goal. I have no desire to be right. In fact, it's, it's a blessing when I, when I get to be wrong because somebody else has a better idea than I had. Mm -hmm. Um, but to your point, when you can see, when you can sort of run the chess game out and say, I think this is going to be a problem, or in some cases, this is going to create future problems for me. I would like to protect future me from the problems based on the decisions you're making. Those are the kinds of things that, that uh, you know, I, I think you're totally, um, you're totally right on the money where you start getting this sort of like physical defense because you are potentially creating problems for future self and you want to protect your future self from whatever decision someone else is making now. Yeah. And, and future others as well. Um, totally. you know, and the, the, if, if you, if you're on a mission to achieve a goal, uh, and then everything around you is undermining that mission, uh, what are you supposed to do? Um, uh, and so, and so you, you developed a mission. Um, so you, you became an independent, uh, developer, uh, and then you became one of the, I mean, one of the first people in the world to get involved with the co-working movement. And we were talking a little bit before this interview and one thing I learned researching for this interview was that co-working is not just a practice, but actually, as I just said, a movement um, mm -hmm. with the politics behind it, as in a sense, and an ideology. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that from the from the, the origins of the movement. How did you uh, become involved and, and why? Yeah. So we can we can 
put a time frame on this too, I think is a little bit helpful. Um, I, I left to begin freelancing. I left my full-time job to freelance as a developer in, in 2006 and was spending a lot of time hanging out in online Skype chat rooms. Actually, it's fun to be, see here on a Skype call with you. Uh, I don't open it very much, uh, these days, but it's a place where I, I made a lot of relationships back when Skype chat rooms were, you know, sort of in many ways, a, a, a we came after IRC, but long before Slack. And there was a group that I had, had gotten connected to that were, they were based out in the Bay area and they were running a consultancy that was doing uh, mostly online community development strategy for some of the bigger Bay area startups and companies. And they sort of had this philosophy around collaboration uh, as a business value that predates things like web 2.0 and, you know, online community management. I mean, it doesn't predate them. Those things obviously go back decades, but now they're, you know, every company has got some sort of online community, some, you know, paid community manager and so on and so forth. This, this predates all of that. Um, but my, my own personal, you know, I, I grew up on the internet. I hung out in online forums and chat rooms a lot. And so to meet people who are building sort of a profession around, those sensibilities was was really exciting for me and to realize, oh, wait, maybe in the, within this world of technology, there's this sort of Venn diagram of I can work with technology and technology people, but I can also hang out with and meet cool people. How, like that's sort of that would be amazing. Um, and so I met met this this duo, um, Chris Messina and Tara Hunt. Um, Tara's got a, 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 an amazing background in um, marketing and uh, and really taking an approach, a sort of a human focused approach and meeting your customers. All the stuff that we look at today is like the fundamentals of good marketing. Tara was preaching about since since the um, early 2000s. Uh, Chris has, has got a, a bunch of interesting bits in his his history as well. He's most famous for inventing the hashtag on, on Twitter and otherwise. Well, that's quite um, something. It is something, uh, for better or for worse, it's something. <laughs> um, but the two of them, so they had this tiny consultancy and they were about to rent their first office for the consultancy. And one of the, um, one of the cafes in the Bay area, Bay area called ritual roasters was one of the sort of like quintessential hangout cafes for, Bay Area nerds, you know, the, the startup technology nerds um, would go and they'd work on their laptops and hang out. And you might bump into somebody who would be the founder of, frankly, honestly, Twitter is, as a great example, or, or Flickr or these other early social web companies. This is all these people hung out. And on on one uh, historical day, Ritual Roasters decided to plug up all of the power outlets in a, in a, to send a very strong message that they didn't want people spending all day there on their laptops. And so Chris and Tara looked at that and said, well, maybe, you know, that sucks your call, but maybe this is an opportunity to create the kind of clubhouse that we were sort of using ritual roasters for, but it wasn't intended to be. And since we're going to get an office, we'll just get a bigger office than we need and make it the new clubhouse for all of our Bay area friends. And if you want to dedicate a desk, you can pay a monthly, fee and that will help us bring our rent down. But for everyone else, we'll just have a big open table. And if you want to work at that open shared table, you can come and go as you please, no charge. And that was other co-working type things existed before that. Um, the, 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 the original co-working space wasn't even really a space. It was a guy named Brad Newberg who was saying, um, I'm struggling to work at home as a, as a consultant. 
I miss having structure and colleagues in my day. So twice a week, I'm going to rent out this yoga studio that's not being used and invite a couple of other people to come work on card tables. And at the end of the day, we, you know, we, we put it back together. Um, but the key there was I want to be around other people and I want us to share a little bit of structure. It was temporary. It's kind of pop up. Um, Chris and Tara took that idea, extended it into, uh, their sort of clubhouse model. That was sort of a combination of Brad's concept that he called co-working first with the reaction to the ritual roasters saying, get out of here, laptop workers. And sort of, I, I think that was sort of the nexus of energy that said, wait a second, we can use this word co-working to describe an act of intentionally being around other people, but working on different things and allow for the best parts of having co-workers, which is the serendipity, the social bonds, the opportunities to share and learn, but we don't all have to work for the same company in order for that to be possible. And I kind of watched all of that happen from 3,000 miles away in my you know, bedroom workspace in Philadelphia as a newly minted freelancer. And I was like, my eyes were googly and I was like, how do I get that for me? And by the way, where the heck are those kind of people here in Philadelphia? I, I again, I'm a freelancer, make stuff on the internet. Who are the other people who make stuff on the internet? There's no meetup.com. There's no co-working space. There's no, like cafe culture was barely a thing. Not everybody even had laptops then. Um, so like, where, where do I go to find my people? And I, and I, I didn't know the answer to that, but it was in finding the answer to that was really where I started to connect the dots and saying, maybe my, my role here in Philadelphia is to find those people and bring them together and then adapt what I've learned from watching Chris and Tara form their community. Um, and, and, and build our own here. And so, uh, the first thing I imagine you had to do was find a space. Well, no, um, that is the common thought process, especially for folks who, you know, today we're recording this in 2020. Um, but I, I think the common theme as coworking has become mainstream is step one is you go and find a location. And we actually spent a year before we even really had a conversation about setting up our own space. We were, running our own gatherings and get togethers. One of the first things that we were doing besides just hanging out at the bar and talking shop after our, our work day, um, or on the weekend was one of our, our crew said, Hey, a bunch of us work from cafes. What if we all went to the same cafe on the same day on purpose? which sounds, <laughs> it sounds, uh, uh, silly. And today, you know, people are even building apps to try and coordinate this, but it was such a critical first step for us realizing, Oh, if we create some sort of physical gathering and momentum, a, we have something to invite other people to. Um, but we also build this sort of like rhythm and momentum where, you know, working from a cafe is, you know, not ideal in a lot of ways. Um, you know, the, the Wi-Fi is generally not very good. There's all kinds of noise and distractions and you're not really in control of the environment at all. No meeting space. The barista is glaring at you cause you've been there all day and haven't bought enough. Um, uh, and, um, security of your stuff, security of your stuff is, is definitely one of them a little bit easier if you're there with a group. Um, nonetheless, in spite of all of the shortcomings, those days of sitting around each other, um, were, were better in a really remarkable way that made us start thinking about, Maybe there's a way for us to do this more often uh, and to have our own place that is that is allows us to come together however we want without all those 
those challenges. And I, I mean, I can even share sort of a, a funny anecdote of, of how strange it is to be intentionally in a co- coffee shop with a bunch of other people. We, we ran, um, we, we had a, a chat room, uh, that we'd run during these events so that people who could not physically join us, we could still, you know, hang out and chat with them and share updates and sort of extend that in-person social experience to a hybrid online and in-person. And somebody cracks a joke in the chat room and six people in the cafe all laugh simultaneously, but the rest of the cafe has no idea why. Those are the kinds of things that are super normal in a co-working space, but in a, in a, in a semi-public space where there's no shared context, you can't turn to the stranger next to you. I mean, you can and introduce yourself and ask what they're working on or, or, you know, help them or ask for help debugging a problem. Like you can do that, but there's no social context for it. If we had our own place, that's all we would have is social context. And so we set out to find a location. Uh, we did that together. We took notes about them. We decided pros and cons. There was no decision on a space and there was no business entity or even really much branding until a few days before we signed the lease. And literally the night before the lease was signed, I organized that same crew together at one of our our local watering holes. And I said, look, here's all the numbers. Here's the details. Here's what it's going to take to make this happen. I don't have a lot of money. I have got a couple thousand dollars to my name that I'm willing to put into this, but I need to know that y'all actually want this. So if you can sign up for, you know, a couple months of membership, six months of membership, if you can prepay for a couple months of membership, um, and sign that tonight, bring your checkbook. Um, that will give me the confidence to sign that lease tomorrow. And we had 21 founding members that night and it was their checks that, that, made it me confident to sign a lease that I didn't know how to pay for otherwise. So you, um, you built your audience before you started your business? 100%. And, and not just our audience, but I think that one of the different things between co-working and the the kinds of online products that folks, you know, that are stacking the bricks students and, and even folks that, that use LeanPub, you know, we follow all the same mechanisms. The, the only extra thing that we got to do with co-working that I think there's room to do with with other products as well is we got to involve those early members in the creation process. One of the analogies I often use is a barn raising where, you know, a lot of people think oh, I'll, I'll go, you know, I'll, I'll go rent a rent an office and I'll hire the architect and I'll design it and it'll be awesome and everybody's going to love it and they'll show up and then they do that and then it doesn't happen and they don't understand why. And the thing is, is because, you know, some people do want and need a place to work, but many of them also have other alternatives and there's no reason to choose that particular place to work because there's no buy-in. But what we were able to do is have folks play a role at every stage from figuring out how, like what we actually needed to where it should be located in the city of Philadelphia to... Um, you know, what does it need to have on day one? Who else should be a part of this? All of those things were community conversations. And, and on the first day we had an empty room and a set of keys and we stood there and said, all right, guys, now what? Oh yeah, we should probably go to Ikea and get some furniture. And we did. And then we assembled that furniture together. So like 13 years later, we're still doing that same thing that we were doing on day one, which is looking for problems and solving them together. Um, it also just so happened that, that there was a viable business in there because that was something that those people not only wanted but wanted to be a part of. 
Yeah, there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of threads to pull in there in that in that story. Um, one of the really interesting uh, things you're describing is I, I use the word audience, but but you were immediately like, no, it's a community. Yeah. Um, and the community is this pretty rich concept, which is it's um, it's sort of people being independent together. Yeah. Is the way I was thinking of it, and I, I really like that image of the barn raising where um, it's not exactly a collective. It's more like a bunch of people who are sort of have their own foundation, but come together to do something. That's right. Um, and uh, one of the things you write about when you write, and you've been writing about co-working for, for longer than almost anybody, um, is that it's not just a place where people come to work. Uh, it's a place where people come to uh, be together with each other while working. And, That's right. And so it's supposed to be, if I understand it correctly, the, the idea is that um, there should, in order to be a community, it needs to be people interacting with each other. And that's more than just chit chat. It's like, oh, hey, I, I like I don't understand how something like this works, but I, I gather that you do. Mm -hmm. can, can you can you answer a couple of my questions and, and to make a place where that's normal to have that kind of interaction and expect it? That's right. Yeah, I think that there's there's a. Two two dynamics that are unique to co-working as a business compared to really most every other kind of – it's just a community as a business, not just co-working. Um, with most other businesses, you source and then deliver the value, whether that value is your time or that value is a product. Um, you still need to replenish it. Digital products are kind of a twist on that because the replenishment is fairly nominal, but nonetheless um, – with co-working and community building, the biggest value I can provide to a new member is all of the other members. And every new member, every new customer, in addition to taking a little bit, they also become part of the value for everybody else. So the more members we have, the more valuable the product actually becomes, um, which is sort of a, a weird way to think about scaling. But because we, we very intentionally design a culture where – Everyone has something to gain, but also every everyone has something to give. And the network is, as you said, independent, but uh, but understands that there are people here who would give given the chance and that you can give when you have a chance. And that's also that it's OK to ask and, and that that dynamic is normal. Um, the precursor to all of that, uh, I believe, is trust and I think you can track this back to my my origin story and those workplaces that were good and not good. Uh, the thing that made a great workplace great was a sense of trust among peers, between peers and management across hierarchy. If people trust each other, they look after each other. They go out of their you, you, there's a there's a an aura. It's weird to say it though. There's a there's a sense when you feel a company has a great culture, a team has a great culture. That's not ping pong and free beer or it's not even, um, you know, things like going to conferences and, and talks. Those are the things you do, but what do they create? They create a sense of people are generous with their time and knowledge. There are people in this room who know things that would be valuable to me and maybe I get a chance to be valuable to them at some point. And if you can, I think the, the most reliable way to gain trust uh, is to teach and to share. And so among the things that we, we really aim for is to get people to share little bits about themselves, not just their work, um, because we know that once people teach or and share with each other that the seeds of trust are planted, we have to continue working to nurture them. But once people trust each other and they trust that the system has their back, 
the things that people will do for and with each other are infinite. And I don't mean that in a, in a hyperbolic way. I, I literally mean I challenge you to find uh, to ask me for a thing that I would that, that I would actually be interested in doing that I could not do with the access and support of the community that we've built. And what's amazing is that's a thing that I have access to, but it's a thing that every single member of our community has access to as well. So you mentioned ping pong. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, there is a big famous company out there, uh, that's in the news all the time, uh, that most people would, that would be their first idea when they think about co-working. Um, and I know that you, there's, there's sort of, I don't know which question to ask first, but I know that a, um, you have decided not to follow it in the news, uh, and B, um, you've written about there being three waves of the co-working kind of movement. Yeah. Um, and so I, I guess I'll ask you first, uh, we're living in sort of turbulent times. Uh, the rest of the world is watching the United States with a particular fascination with respect to news. Um, why have you made this decision? In, uh, let's bracket politics, uh, but to, to not follow this, this big company in the sort of day-to-day -day news about co-working. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, the short answer to that is because it doesn't help uh, me or anybody else. Um, and most importantly, I'd say because it's a distraction from the people who I actually aim to serve. Um, and this is sort of a, a more uh, it's a life philosophy in addition to a business philosophy that you you, you have a sort of finite amount of attention uh, to, to give to things. It's your job to choose. Um, we live in a, a more distractible world than ever before. That just means we've got to flex that muscle more often. And I watch a lot of folks uh, in every stage of their career, their business, their industry, whatever it is, lose a lot of energy to paying attention to what other people are doing or are doing wrong. Mm. And when you're putting energy that is val that could be valuably helping the people who you aim to help, whether that is out of uh, goodwill or because helping people earns you money, because that's generally how economics work. Um, every ounce of energy I put into f fussing, fretting, talking about analyzing what somebody else is doing wrong is energy I could have put into literally anything else. But most importantly, in my mind, the thing I actually care about so I'm just extremely uh, – it's not that I'm not paying attention at all. I know what company you're talking about um, <laughs> and, and, I, and I know the big picture. But the micro, the day-to-day, -day, the things that they do – and this is, again, true of any industry. The, thing, the little things that happen in the day-to-day -day news on the arc of, of anything important – the odds of them mattering are so, so, so low, but they can occupy headspace. They can take up time, and that's the one thing we don't get more of. And so I, I, I make it my focus to say the day-to-day -day doesn't matter. I'll look for the macro. I'll look at the, the, the long arc. I'm interested in not even big changes, but what those changes mean over time. So – um, or, or maybe part of my meta interest in this becomes I'm interested in how other people pay attention to things that I don't think are important. And I see that as an opportunity, um, in coworking, one of the, my greatest fascinations 
is how most co-working spaces look basically exactly like each other. They're all crappy clones of each crappy self. Like they all they all do the exact same mediocre thing. And then they spend all this time competing against each other for in, in this race to the bottom where all they can really compete on is price or free stuff. And I'm not interested in that game at all. And instead, I, I, I'm, interest, I'm interested in that they are playing that game. But I also know that that game doesn't affect me in any negative way. Them doing it wrong has no impact on me. Certainly not any negative impact on me. It may have some positive impact on me in that if they're all doing the same thing incorrectly, then I just need to stay the course and not lose any time or energy to whatever they out there are doing. And this uh, this they that you're describing, I think that maps on to uh, the second wave of co-working that you wrote about in a blog post that I don't think too long ago. Yeah. Um, uh, and so I was wondering if you could talk about what those just b briefly about what those three waves are. And, yeah. and, and I, I've just found it so fascinating to, again, as I said, like I was one of those guys who, who thought he knew all about it uh, <laughs> and discovered he knew nothing uh, when you start reading about it. <laughs> well, it's cool. I'm I'm thrilled that you took the time to dig through. And I, I I hope something in there was was useful for your approach to whether it's co-working spaces or or just coming together and work. Um, so. I was describing those early days of co-working with Brad Newberg and um, his sort of pop-up co-working at the Spiral Muse and then the the operation Citizen Space that Tara and Chris and some friends set up. Um, and then, you know, we set up Indie Hall in Philadelphia and then there was a place called Office Nomads in Seattle and there was a place in New York City called New Work City. And basically this entire and, – and there are many, many more. But like these people were, were A, my, my peers and my friends – we were all coming together online to to share what we were doing, to ask questions of each other. We were kind of you, you mentioned earlier that co-working was a movement. We were the, the early movement was not, hey, we're people setting up offices. We, it was more, hey, we're people who feel like the options that we have for finding other like minded people when we don't have an office that we have to go to are slim. Maybe there's an opportunity to create these third places, these clubhouses and that would be a way to make our, our local communities better in some way. That was the common thread. How you did it wasn't – I mean wasn't super dogmatic. It was sort of this open source approach to something that wasn't software. I gave away everything I was doing and learning rather than you know patenting it, licensing it. Um, I'd rather – I've been trying to give away the good stuff for, for close to 15 years and people will – actively do the opposite. Um, but that first wave of co-working myself, my peers and, and a bunch of other, you know, really, in, you know, pioneering folks, um, uh, in this co-working world, the thing we all had in common was we were all figuring it out together. There were no rules. And if we got something wrong, that was okay. And we all got to learn from it. If we did something right, that was amazing. And we all got to learn from it. And no one knew what co-working was. Uh, no one cared what co-working was. There was a period in time where I had a Google alert for the word co-working, um, which, you know, today would be like trying to set up a Google alert for the word programming, like that Google alert would not be useful. Um, but there was a point in time where it was useful because a new person would write about it. And now I'm connected to another person through this nascent concept. And that person might be literally anywhere in the world because that's how that's the, the beauty of the Internet. So that first wave of, of pioneers sharing, growing um, a handful of us are still still around doing our thing. Um, second wave came along most noticeably to me 
in like 2010, 2011, and I was at a, a co-working conference. That's another thing that happened along the way is we started wanting to get together in person. So I was at a co-working conference in Berlin, and it was the first time where I looked down the room and I was like, there are an awful lot of real estate people here. The same people who would say co-working, what a cute, silly little concept, we're now coming to our conference and we're now using our language to uh, and, and our sort of concepts, at least in, in a surface level manner of speaking, to sell their buildings, to sell their real estate, to s sell their architecture and design and furniture. And they were selling all the surface level stuff but completely missing all of the underlying human and emotional dynamics that actually made the experience valuable. Um, but it also kicked off this second wave, as you're describing, of people who um, – and I think this is this is true of any sort of new technology if you're willing to think of co-working as a technology. There's the first wave people who figure everything out and there's the second wave people who blindly copy it. Mm -hmm. And I think every programmer – that has tried out a new framework or been forced to try out a new framework understands what I'm talking about. Or anytime new, a new concept is popular in, in, you know, some book popularized it or some speaker popularized it, we know what that feeling looks, feels like where all of a sudden everybody is blindly doing the thing without thinking about why they're doing it. And second wave co-working was absolutely that. And it gave birth to, you know, some of the, the mega, mega, uh, corporate chains, tons of funding floods into the space. Um, a lot of the early folks, including folks who aren't running spaces, but people who would become kind of enamored with and maybe I would argue you say romantic about the sort of soul of co-working now calling for the death of co-working because it's being used by, you know, Regis corporate offices and blah, 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 blah. And I had some of those emotional responses too. I'd be lying if, if I said that wasn't true. Um, but I also took a big step back and I was like, so what? Like their version sucks and my version's really good. Our version's really good. So what if we just keep doing our version and let them burn themselves out? Um, and that has, you know, that arc I think has largely been playing out. There's a lot of big players. Um, most of them don't make, make much money. Many, most of them lose money. And one of them in particular famously loses lots of money. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but that's, that's the nature of that beast. There's a third wave of co-working, though, that I've seen more of in the last couple of years. And again, it's to sort of map this to other industries that people people might be living in if they're not, you know, sort of in the, in the co-working space itself, where you go through that first wave of pioneering, you go through the second wave of blind copying. And then there's a third wave of people who kind of watched the first and second and said, well, those first wave folks had some really good ideas, but maybe they were a little too idealistic, you know, so, you know, the, the, the but does it work at scale? Right. Um, sounds like a great idea. We'll see how it works in practice. But then they also watched the second wave come along where people just blindly copied it. And they said, well, if I was going to do this, I'd want to be a little more practical than those idealistic first waivers. But I'd also want to be a little more grounded than those purely opportunistic second waivers. And somewhere in the middle, I think you get an opportunity to learn from both and create what I'm defining as third wave co-working and something that I've noticed over the last few years more and more operators when they when they reach out you know I, I because I've been writing about this so long and I'm active in the community I hear from people from all different directions through every single inbox I'm willing to make public and more and more people are looking at this and they're thinking they're thinking mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they're doing their research and they're willing to invest in the time to do the homework 
the education, the resources and the knowledge that maybe you're locked up in these other people. Um, because I think people, I think there's a, there's a, a, a future of co-working that is not, um, futuristic at all. I think it's a very human scale thing. That's kind of the beauty of it that people are discovering is both, uh, um, a powerful tool for productivity, for happiness, for building local communities, for improving people's lives in cities, for improving people's careers and paths, whether they choose independence or remote work. I mean, this is a massive piece of the remote work puzzle, I believe, um, as well. Not that you need to work in a co-working space every day, but to have a place to go to be around other people that aren't part of your team, I think is, is a really valuable emotional tool to combat some of the isolation and disconnection that comes with being remote. Yeah. Speaking, speaking of all that, sorry to interrupt, but um, I think there's a really important point that's, that you're making here is that the, the big company and the other big companies in the co-working space actually aren't competitors for institutions like Indie Hall, because what you're doing is much more than just providing, you know, furniture and space. That's right. And, and more also like we, we go after a completely different base of customers, like the people who want a desk that they don't have to think about whether or not it's going to be available or not when they travel from city to city. Like that makes sense. That's what they, they, they want and need that. that do, but that doesn't solve the same problem. The, the, who, what, what problem we solve and for whom we solve it. Um, it is extraordinarily rare that uh, that that we would effectively serve the same customer or more importantly, that the same customer would be happy at both. If anything, we get a good number of people who say, you know, I signed up for, they had a free three month trial or I, you know, I got locked into a six month contract, but it kind of, you know, that the pitch was good, but the product isn't really what they said it was. And nobody really talks to anybody and it's kind of cold and sterile. And I'm wondering if there's other options out there that are, you know, warm and inviting and are maybe full of people that I have things in common with or could, could build bonds with. And, you know, we get to be, we get to be the thing that they're selling, but not delivering. Um, it's, you know, it's not a primary channel of new membership, but we hear it on a, on a weekly basis, people, new members, prospects coming through and saying, yeah, I've spent time in other co-working spaces and it's just not right for me, but this sounds different. And I want to see what it's all about. And you've managed to scale uh, quite successfully with Indie Hall. I believe you started at a few hundred square feet and now you're at something like 16,000. Yeah. I mean, our first location was was around 1,500 square feet, um, like about 20 desks. Um, or I should say 20 people could work simultaneously without you know, being in each other's laps. Um, and yeah, we're, 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 you know, tens of thousands of square feet are our, our, our our capacity is, I mean, we're not even, we could add more workspace within the physical space we have. But last week we had one of our, our busiest days ever. I want to say we had like 200, like 180, 200 people here, um, something like that. But more importantly than that even is the majority of our members almost never come here. Our online community is actually in some some days, many days, more, more connected and vibrant than the physical space. And through a Slack-based chat room and an email discussion list. When you're a member of our community, yeah, you've got a place you can come and have access to like-minded people, but you can do that from your pocket because you've got a smartphone. Um, and that means that people, most of our members are here once a month or less, and a large number of them are here basically never, but are quite active online, whether that's because they have a corporate job and they see us as a as sort of a, a, a direction that they'd like to head, you know, or some inspiration for them to leave their job and go independent, 
or there are people who have moved away but want to stay connected to the community, or there are people that have corporate jobs, or even they are entrepreneurs who have an office somewhere else in the city, but they they don't necessarily they they want an alternative to those coworkers. I should say um, I don't want to say they don't like their coworkers, but a change of scenery can be really valuable from a productivity uh, and and creativity standpoint. And sometimes it's just nice to to be in a place where everyone else is getting work done, but it's not your fault if they're not. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of reasons. Yeah. Just, just to go into the weeds just very briefly, um, uh, for anyone listening, who's now, you know, sort of all fired up about how I'd love to have a place like that, uh, in my city and how can I start one? Um, can you talk a little bit about the details of your membership model? Yeah, sure. So our membership model is, has a, is fairly, um, consistent from the very beginning, because again, we had those members before we had a, a business. And so I was able to talk to those members like, you know, if there was a place, how often would you want to be there and what would be valuable to you? And in that early membership, I mentioned 21 members, only two of us were full time and I was one of them. Um, so the idea that people will want a desk to work at totally not the game, but lots of people wanted to know that there would be a place they could go if and when they wanted to, and that the people that they know and like would be there. So we built our model around that, and our, our, model, our membership model actually starts at between $20 and $30 a month for people who really just want access to the online community, or if they're here in Philadelphia, or say, and if they're here in Philadelphia, the physical in-person events, um, and discounted access for our day passes and things like that. And then the rest of our memberships uh, run between 30 and $300 a month. And the only difference between them, they all have give you the same access to everything and everybody. Um, we don't charge extra for meeting rooms and all those kinds of things, sort of all inclusive. And the only difference is, is how often you're here. So we've got a membership that is, like I said, once a month, we have one that's six days a month. We have one that's roughly three days a week and another one that's full time with a dedicated desk, um, all under and around $300. Um, which means again, for, uh, with with a basic membership, for instance, that, that $30 a month gets you one day of co-working, but all of our online stuff for 30 bucks a month or roughly $300 a year, not only do you have a place you could go to get out of the house or get out of the cafe or get out of the office that you have and be around other people, but every day of the week you have access to a wide network of networks of people in different industries, disciplines, backgrounds from different places with different stories, with different, um, you know, past, present and future lives, the networks that they bring with them. And that's the superpower I was talking about earlier. All these people who once you've taken, done a little bit of work to, to that we we guide people through to earn and build trust, the ability to send a message to that list and say, looking for help with X, or I'm trying to figure this out. Does anybody know whatever? And it starts becoming like weirdly general purpose, but also in a, in a, it's not like a, a public space, like a Craigslist or something like that. It is still very intimate in spite of how giving you access to hundreds of people and that membership model having less focus on desks and no focus on private offices. We have no private offices is what's allowed us to grow, scale, be resilient and not focus on putting butts in seats, but instead bringing people into the community, helping them build that trust. Because again, having that trust is the value that you get. It's really fascinating just to bring up a concrete example of how this works. Um, let's say uh, you've got a startup and you want to start a podcast, but you don't know anything about it. If you're in mm -hmm. a community like this, you can just fire out a message and you'll find people who can do it for you. 
not only that, but the podcast studio that I'm sitting in right now <laughs> oh, right, was, st- right. was started. Indie Hall Studios. <laughs> way, yeah, Indie Hall Studios, live from Indie Hall Studios. Um, today we've got a, a, a pretty nice set of gear that members can use. Um, but early on, it was exactly that. It was a member saying, I'm thinking about starting a podcast for my business. A, has anybody done that? B, if I were to do some research on the technology we need, does anybody want to chip in? So the first versions of the stuff that we used Indie Hall didn't even buy. A bunch of members pooled their money, bought their own stuff. And then as more people used it, I realized, oh, there's momentum here. Now there's a clear path and incentive for us to get even better gear. Um, and that can become a resource that, that other people can use. But to your point, even with the, the the studio that we have and all the gear that we have, the thing that people – the thing we've done to keep it aligned with the Indie Hall mission and mindset is when you join, it's not – I mean, yes, you get a certain number of sessions in the recording studio, but um, the the real value is a network of other people who make podcasts, whether they are the hosting, whether they are doing technical editing, whether they're using it to market a business or a product or a service, whatever it is. And so building a community around the practice of podcasting differentiates there's other places in the city that have literally the exact same equipment i know because we made the list of what equipment we use public and they copied us but people will still come here not because of the equipment but because of the other people who use that equipment and having access to those other people is the unique value that i can offer that no one else can copy and um, just before we move on to talk to the next uh, part of the interview, where we, uh, I know for people listening, we finally get to the point where you meet Amy Hoy and you guys, you guys start <laughs> doing things together. Uh, but um, you've got a very uh, deep commitment to um, the issue of, of working and how people work together and productivity. And one expression of that is your 10K independence project. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. There's another, there's another big company that played a role uh, in that story. I'm happy to talk about them. Um, <laughs> so, so um, one of the things of running, a, I've been running a business for now, you know, 15 years, and once in a while, you need to take a step back and say, "What are we doing here again?" Like, not what do we do, but why are we doing it? And just try and recalibrate that north star and all those things that I described in the origin of Indie Hall, and that like. It was hard to find the sense of community I wanted. Not only do we have it here in Indie Hall, but it exists throughout Philadelphia for so many other communities. We have an amazing startup community. We have an amazing music community, amazing food community, an amazing um, arts and bar. There's so many amazing communities that were so hard to find a decade ago that are easy to find now. And so the problem to solve looks a little bit different. And... I had a bunch of sort of disconnected ideas that kind of galvanized when I watched cities, including Philadelphia, uh, across the country compete with each other, I should say against each other, for the privilege to give Amazon massive tax breaks and build a second headquarters in the city, in our city. Um Philadelphia did end up being a t- – you know, we, we, we entered into that race, not myself personally, but our commerce department did. Um, we were a top 10 pick. Uh, I firmly believe that we never were actually a pick because I think that Bezos knew exactly where he wanted to be and he used this entire game to just get amazing de- deals from these cities. But that's, that's about as conspiracy theory as I'll get about it. Um, what my big takeaway from, from the whole thing, knowing – well, A, we didn't win or I should say – we did win because we didn't win. Right. Um, <laughs> I was fairly confident if it, any city that does get this, it's, it's going to be net negative uh, for, for a lot of people for a long time. Um, 
I saw two things. One was I watched our business community collaborate to speak kindly about our business community and our city for the first time in a long time. Not that people always, I mean, sometimes people do talk down on, you know, why would you run a business in Philadelphia? But more importantly, it was players that actively do not get along were willing to be part of a coordinated message to talk about how great it is to run a business in Philadelphia or how great it could be. Um, and I was like, that's interesting. Maybe we should issue these challenges more often um, with with maybe fewer stakes that are, you know, risking, you know, dis- displacement of our um, most vulnerable populations and, and such. But the other part of it was the promise, the offer from Amazon was not that big. It was 50,000 jobs, which, you know, is not nothing. And for a lot of cities across America, it's actually quite significant. But for a city like Philadelphia, that's the you know sixth largest city in the country. 50,000 jobs is a drop in the bucket. And they're not jobs for the people who need those jobs the most. You know, these are not replacing um, – you know, they're, they're, they're white collar jobs. This is a blue collar city. Um, so the deal as much as it could be had to be a bad one because Amazon's getting tons of benefits to bring in my mind only 50,000 jobs. And so my takeaway here is like, if the, the number that makes city hall and everyone else do backflips and puts Amazon in the news nonstop for 18 months is I'm bringing 50,000 jobs to your city. Well, guess what? I'm bringing, I, Alex Hillman, are bringing 50,000 jobs to the city of Philadelphia. How do you like them apples? Um, And it's not just a hyperbolic pitch. I believe there's actually a way to do it and do it in a way that maps to the strengths of Indy Hall and in a way that makes sense in in the next decade, you know, in in modern time. And the the short version of a much longer pitch that you can go read at IndyHall.org slash 10K uh, and I say longer, it's like an 8,000 word diatribe. So enjoy. Um, it's a fun read, I hope, but I, I think we'll, we'll color this with a bit more detail. The path that I've drawn is not to create 50,000 jobs by installing them in the city. Like we're used to from the previous generation in the industrial revolution, jobs came in factory sized packages, company sized packages where, where 50,000 jobs was a kind of package that cities would compete for and try to earn. But today, companies don't start with 50,000 employees. They don't start with 1,000 employees. They don't start with 100 employees. Most companies don't even really start with 10 or 5. More and more companies are starting with one. And the internet is this incredible lever that makes that possible to be a single person who puts value into the world and earns a living from it. It's the most incredible thing. LeanPub is a part of that ecosystem. The things you do for your authors allows people to – through a individual product services or portfolio of, of all of the above to create an economic advantage for yourself. And then if you choose down the road to scale that, to start creating economic opportunities for other people, jobs, right? So my path to creating 50,000 jobs in Philadelphia is to first help 10,000 people sustainably create a job for themselves through paths of independence and entrepreneurship, which may not look like starting the next Facebook or SaaS app and instead may look like starting a very straightforward service-based business 
whether that's a local business or online business does not matter, but that business makes it so that you don't have to go back and get a corporate job. And then once you've got that business stable, once that business, once you not only learn how to create the thing, but also how to sell the thing, how to market the thing, how to build systems around it, how to actually run it like a business, then you, the, the analogy I've been using is once you put on your oxygen mask, then you can start helping other people. Just like we've heard thousands of times on an airplane. Mm-hmm. I think economic advantage works the same way. If we can help 10,000 people build an economic advantage for themselves, create a job for themselves that allows them to, you know, not just cover their bills, but, uh, you know, save for retirement, afford health care, um, go on vacation, like a, 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 a job that is equivalent to or better than what you could get working for somebody else. Giving myself 10 years to create 10,000 of those, and this is not an Alex Hillman goal, but a Philadelphia goal. Um, the work I do with Amy, we've already done that for thousands of people around the world. If I laser focus part of my energy on doing that in Philadelphia and then also doing it for people who are not already in a position of skill and privilege like programmers and technologists and designers, you know, we've got to teach other people some of the core skills first before we can teach them how to build a business around it. But we can do that. Um, it's In a lot of ways, it's bringing the work in the world that I've done with Amy for the last decade and the success we've seen there home. Um, but also making it available to more people through the lens of, you know, maybe you think entrepreneurship isn't for you because the word entrepreneur looks a certain way. And whenever you see someone described as an entrepreneur, you go, that's them, not me. And I want to show people that entrepreneurship looks like a lot of things that are not Mark Zuckerberg, that are not, you know, venture funded unicorns, um, and are not even apps and technology, um, those are just one category that happens to be in the news way too much. Um, so you've, but, uh, you've handed me the perfect podcast interview segue um, excellent. <laughs> into the next part of our interview. Um, uh, can you uh, talk a little bit about the origin story of your collaboration, your very successful collaboration, I should say, with Amy Hoy um, and uh, what, what, you're, what you've been up to for the last 10 years together? Yeah. So, I mean, the origin story, I was at South by Southwest Interactive in Austin, Texas in 2008. Um, and it was either 2007, which was my first year, 2008. I feel really bad not knowing which, um, but one of them. And I had blown out my voice from talking to too many people. <laughs> and I was standing in line to get a cup of tea at the Starbucks in the Austin Convention Center. And I turned out that I was standing next to the CTO of Pandora named oh. Tom Conrad and we were just chatting and I was like, that was one of the cool things to be a South by was to like chat with cool internet people. And on my other side was this woman named Amy and the three of us chatted for as long as we were in line for tea and then Tom peeled off and Amy and I kept walking and talking and we became friends. Um, that's that's the that's the the truth of how how we met and how we how we uh, came together. Uh, it really wasn't for another couple of years. You know, her her and some friends came to, um, uh, you know, to indie halls uh, opening. It had to it had to have been two thousand and eight things. So our our um, 
I'm sorry. No, it was 2007 because then she came to the Indie Hall opening in, two, in, in late in 2007. That's right. Um, so her and her then boyfriend, now husband, came to Indie Hall's opening. I went to visit them in Vienna when they moved in together. Um, and one of the things that Amy and I would consistently commiserate on was how you know I had started this Indie Hall business as sort of this unexpected spinoff of my freelancing business. She had much more intentionally built a SaaS business to escape her consulting business she hated. Um, but the common theme we had was we built our audiences and communities first. We listened diligently to what those people actually cared about. We took the time to understand them and how to communicate with them. And then we built stuff that they would actually pay for. Meanwhile, a bunch of our friends who were equally skilled in craft as designers, developers, writers, whatever it is, hop from startup job they hated to corporate job they hated to another startup job they hated and then occasionally going to raise a bunch of venture capital to create another job they would hate. And so, and none of them would examine all of the white space in between those options, uh, some of which looked like the things that Amy and I were doing. We said, why is that? Or why is it that when people do choose to try and bootstrap a business that it appears too hard or that they do the wrong things or in the wrong order? And in their apartment in Vienna, Amy and I did sort of like a, a real world Trello board with a bunch of post-it notes brainstorming where are all the people – where are all the ways people screw this up? Why aren't more of our smart, talented, creative friends building old school, simple businesses using the levers and power of the internet? Why aren't they why, – why aren't they – why is it that it's either a startup or corporate job I hate or a world-changing venture-funded rocket ship? There's – what are they not seeing? Um and the only other piece of that story that I, I sort of glazed over is actually Amy had enough success with her software as a service that people were kind of following along uh, uh, with that process. And she offered the ability to join her for a, a three-hour conference call for $99. And she would go through not just the origin story but also like lessons learned along the way. Here's literally how I launched a software as a service in 2008 or nine, I think it was. Um, and how I launched it so that I had paying customers on day one, which for a lot of programmers, you know, building a software tool was easy. Having customers on day one was a pipe dream. And she's like, I did it. We build a couple thousand dollars on day one, not enough to replace our consulting income, but a pretty solid day one and enough to give us the confidence to keep going. And nine people signed up for that initial conference call and all of them said, we want more. And that was when she came to me and said, what do you think about taking what we've learned to create sort of a, a roadmap to teach other people the things that are s somehow not obvious to them because they're steeped in the other narratives of how work and business creation happen and show them that there's another way and let them choose it. And so over the last decade, we've evolved from that three-hour phone call and our uh, soon after our, our initial curriculum to what is today the like fourth or fifth major revision. Um, but it is a, a uh, it's a, a course that is a combination of exercises, lessons, practice, and guided implementation to help people with no audience whatsoever and not even really knowing what they could create of value for the internet. We take them from figuring out who they're best suited to create things for and how to reach those people, how to build an audience if they're, if they're a nobody or if they're not a nobody, how to leverage the assets they have to build an audience that would actually buy things from them. And then lastly, and it's strange to some people that this is last, then figure out, well, what would those people buy from me? 
and use all the research-based approach that that we've created over time and, and some very specific methodologies that Amy has pioneered uh, uh, to use actual data and insights to drive the the, the beginning of a business. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, over, over the last decade, that, that business has grown and evolved. Last year was our, our best year ever. We, we had a you know, hundreds of students through the program last year alone. We've had thousands of students over the, the, the course of, uh, the history. Um, and you know, we have some, some of our, our success, some of our biggest success stories are very exciting. Um, folks that your audience might be familiar with things like egghead.io, which is a very popular programming, uh, screencast library and, and subscription. Joel, uh, hooks, one of the partners is an alumni of ours. Brennan Dunn, um, has a very successful business, uh, in, in help helping freelancers, um, grow their business. And then a second, very successful business. That's a SaaS, um, helping, helping marketers use sort of, uh, um, uh, in, uh, quizzes and surveys and things like that. So to progressively profile them, but Besides the big successes, we've also got lots of really awesome, quiet, smaller successes of people making an extra, you know, ten to fifty thousand dollars on the side of a full-time job using the exact same techniques, you know, doing the work in their nights and weekends to make that extra money to pay down their mortgage faster, to go on that extra vacation, to buy their kids stuff they want, or to save up enough money to, for the cushion to leave the job that they hate so that they have more time to spend with their, their family or doing what they really care about. So, you know, the, the, those successes, you know, the, I, I'm very proud of, of the, 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 the whales that we've, we've been able to contribute to, but the, the many, many folks who, who quite literally have changed the way that they spend their time in ways that allow them to spend time with their family or doing things that they love are the ones that I'm most proud of. And, and it's, and it's interesting because most of them are people that, um, you've probably never heard of, but they're, they're doing, they're doing the thing and, and, uh, we're super proud of them. You know, I know, I thank you for putting it that way. I know exactly what you mean. Um, that's exactly how I feel about, uh, my work with authors at lean pub. Um, you know, we've got, we've, we've, you know, a few people have got some Lambos, um, and that's, that's fantastic. Uh, partly, partly it's fantastic because, um, their success comes from reaching and helping lots of people develop their own careers because most, most lean pub books are about, you know, tech uh, and learning how to do new things. Uh, but the, the ones that, uh, are more numerous are the ones where it's like, well, now I can pay down my student loans. Uh, now I can pay my mortgage. Uh, now I can, yeah, go on a vacation or buy a car, even, um, things like that. Uh, those, those things change people's lives too. Uh, and it's and in particular, it's, it's building an audience of people whose needs you can genuinely address, which is where this whole discussion gets kind of meta. Um, uh, but that's, that's such a, such a, uh, a wonderful mission to be on. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, so just, just so for people listening, so that the, the, the people whose needs you and Amy address are, uh, typically people, well, not necessarily typically, but one subset of them are people who've had a fuck this moment. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, about what a fuck this moment is. Yeah. So, uh, lots of people, well, let me back up a little bit. Change is hard. <laughs> uh, that's a perennial truth. And, and I think it's part of the human condition. And I think a subset of that is that people don't really change. Uh, the harder the change is, 
this is more true, but even when it's relatively small, most people don't won't go through the pain of change unless the pain of not changing is bigger. And when it comes to starting a business, there is so much that I, I believe from now observing it thousands of times over over many years, there's so much more unlearning that needs to be done than learning and it hurts and it's difficult. Um, and that's in addition to the actual work, which I think you can be methodical and strategic and it can be less painful and hurt less. And if you're doing a good job, it doesn't have to hurt at all. Um, it's still going to be work. The, the trick though is that we've seen lots of people show up with exuberance and motivation at the beginning, but as soon as it gets hard, it's a question. It's now a juggling act between, well, do I want to do the thing that's harder or do I want to do the thing I know how to do? And this is one of the strangest, most counterintuitive lessons I've ever learned um, in this entire process of becoming a, a teacher of adults is that the better at, at the thing that somebody typically does. So, so again, let's say the, the person, one of our students is a, a programmer. That's what they do as a profession. The better they are at the thing they do as a profession, the harder it is them, for them to be a total newbie and suck at something else. Mm. So they sit down to learn marketing or research or copywriting or any of the other things that are needed in order to be successful. And because they're not instantly good at it, they freak out. And the longer it's been since they were bad at something, which everybody is when they start something truly new, everyone's bad at it. But if it's been so long since they've been bad at it, the it, they internalize being bad at it as instead of I'm bad at it and can get better, it's I'm bad at it and therefore I'm bad. And they shut down. And it's it's a it's I, I don't I don't want to be too lighthearted about it because I think it's a, it's a serious psychological game, um, but the 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 point of a fuck this moment is as Amy puts it in in an article that folks can find if you Google fuck this moment stacking the bricks or um, you you'll. The way she describes it is something happens in your current situation where you throw your hands in the air and say, I cannot do this any longer. Not I don't like this. Not I wish this was gone. It is no mas. We are done here. And that could be so many different things for so many different people. We hear everything from, you know, uh, um, a, a boss that you know passes them over for yet another opportunity to, you know, misuse, abuse of time, the stuff you and I were talking about earlier in this conversation about, you know, people just making decisions that don't make any sense. Um, a very common one for creative people is, you know, projects that never see the light of day. I put all my work into something, it gets to 90% and then the, the company just decides, yeah, we're not going in that direction anymore. All kinds of things, um, cause that or personal things at home. Like I missed another important milestone with my kids that can't happen again. Or I come home exhausted and that makes my, my, my significant other upset that can't happen anymore. Those are the kinds of things that get people fired up. And what we challenge people to do is capture that moment, write it down if, if you can and keep it visible and present for the moments where, where maybe it starts feeling a little bit easy uh, and then it, all of a sudden it gets hard again and you have that, that moment of like, 
man, I'm just going to go back to what was easy. Look at that fuck this moment and say, no, that's, that's what I stand for now. That's what drives me. Um, and it, it can, it doesn't have to be a big thing in order to be a, a real thing. Size is not the goal here. It's the way it emotionally lights you up. And if you can tap into that emotion and use it for good instead of to drag yourself down or spend time wallowing or upset, use that energy to create for other people who would value your creating or just to put good into the world in general. Um, I feel like that's a a, a critical early lesson to learn regardless of what you're going to put that energy towards. And yeah, that, um, that really resonates, I think, with my understanding of, of the sort of like um, deeper mission that you and Amy are on. And so the, the, the origin of the name 30 by 500, I think, is that, um, you know, you, you mentioned the sort of, you know, uh, wonderful power of the Internet. Um, the, the inspiration is, you know, there's someone who's like maybe they haven't quite had the fuck this moment yet, but they've, they've come close a few times, but they're nervous about, you know, change um, or, or, you know, uh, inhibited about change in some way. And then, you know, if you can say to someone, Hey, look, if you can find 30 people to pay you 500 people to pay you $30 a month, that's right. You can make $180,000 a year. That's right. And one way to do that. And so the typical way I think people get involved with, you know, putting something valuable into the world and making it and improving the world for people is they have an idea and then they try and find people for that idea. Uh, but your approach, I think, is that one thing, if you want to introduce something into the world, of course, it's going to, it should be something you, you ultimately can do well. Uh, but what you need to do is find a group of people who have a need that you can address. That's right. That's very, very right. And the other thing I was, I was out for drinks with somebody last night who said, said what you said in a way I hadn't heard it before. Um, at least not that this particular framing I thought was really impactful. It was so interesting to hear. Um, he's in his first year of being an entrepreneur and he's more, A, he comes from the nonprofit space. So just to like remold his brain from nonprofit to for-profit entrepreneur is fascinating in and of itself. And he's now looking at the shift from services and contracts into products and productized services and things like that. And he has been doing his homework and reading our stuff. And he said about that idea of if you just find 500 people on the internet you're good. And he said what that did for him was he realized you don't have to like it, it allows you to erase from your brain the worry about are they even out there? Right. For him, he said, I don't have to worry about whether or not there's 500 people out there because of course there's 500 people out there. The world is so big. The Internet is so big. You may have to f- do a little work to find them, but the obsession with finding the perfect niche, the perfect, you know, people like create this like magical avatar of, of a fictional character to serve. There are zero of that fictional character because you made them up. You might get lucky and match. But if once you realize that there is a th- th- that th- there is a extraordinarily high likelihood that on planet Earth, of the people who are connected to the internet, that there are 500 people who you could figure out if you absolutely had to, how to reach, how to connect with, how to earn their trust, how to help them, and how to make a sale. Every professional, I, I truly believe this, every professional can do that. The internet is big enough. Um, and the, the fact that the number made him realize, I don't even need to worry about who they are immediately. 
I just it's in order to have the confidence to know that they do exist. And none of our students have ever said it that way. So it was really interesting. And I'm actually thinking about how we can reframe that. It's like if you are willing to admit that it is possible and more importantly that it is extraordinarily likely that there's 500 people in, in the entire world who match these criteria, then you can stop worrying about whether or not they exist and just focus on finding them, helping them and creating things they want. Before we go on to uh, a discussion of some of the practicalities about uh, how to to do what you and Amy teach people to do, um, you have had to do some learning, I gather, in the last couple of years because uh, Amy's had to pull back a little bit from uh, the business. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you've managed to grow it. In the meantime, you said you just had your best year. Yeah. Um, how have you how have you addressed that? What's the nature of the challenge and how have you addressed it? Well, that's such a good question. Um, so I, the Indie Hall, the business we spent most of the first part of our conversation talking about is a business that uh, in a lot of ways I am the face of. I'm, you know, people aren't buying me as the product, but there's a good chance that if you know about Indie Hall, you know that there's this Alex Holman guy associated with it. Um, and it, it's fine. That's not why I do it. It's just part of the dynamic and it's cool. Um, with Stacking the Bricks, most people know Amy's name first. Um, and that's for a lot of very good reasons. I mean, this, this audience that we work with, she very much started building long before I was involved. That's how she sold those first nine seats on that conference call. Um, she also has written and contributed far more public facing articles on our, our website and our newsletter. And so people sign up and they expect to hear from Amy and all the emails that we send are signed from Amy. And a lot of people don't even know that I exist unless they happen to read one of the articles or emails that I'm either mentioned in or I actually wrote and then Amy introduces on my behalf or they buy something from us and then I show up all over the place. I'm very involved in the products, um, but our public facing persona is very Amy. And she and I have talked a lot about that challenge and some of that is practical, um, just like what her, she's a much better writer than I am. Um, she's just done more of it. Uh, but we have a, a shared goal that, you know, the people n know me, but also know my contributions because I think we just think that's going to be a net value for, for the business. When, when we teach together, we create more value. So when we run the rest of the business together, that should be true as well. It's a tricky thing to shift from, uh, uh, though, when people are used to it. And honestly, even though we're used to it, it's just like some habits to break. Um, and the other dynamic that is worth knowing is that um, that Amy suffers uh, from a, a number of chronic illnesses that affect her energy levels, her ability to think and work. And, and it's not that she doesn't want to. There's a lot of days she wakes up and she literally can't. Um, and that's been part of the dynamic over the years. Um, on the flip side, there's been times where I got pulled into other parts of my other businesses and I couldn't do the work that I was committed to. And so we've, we've had opportunities as business partners to, um, to correct for each other in, in various ways that that's a whole other conversation about partnership, um, that I, I would love to have someday. Um, but in the context of, of this conversation in, in the beginning of 2018, uh, Amy had taken some time off at the end of, of the previous year to sort of recoup from some health issues. But our plan was to do our 
opening enrollment of our, our flagship course 30 by 500 in January, as we typically do. She typically leads the writing for, um, we build the strategies together, but again, it's Amy's voice. So Amy does a lot of the writing and she's like, man, I'm, I'm still too sick. I can't come back to work yet. And I was like, you know what? I have an idea. We've launched these products so many times. We know what we're doing. Most of our launches we wrote and executed once and then never again. <laughs> like every we, we came back to launch again, but we created an entirely new series of content and messaging and emails and answering questions and all those things. I said, while you stay in bed and get better, I'm going to take a crack at digging through our archives, looking at what performed well in the past. And my goal was to kind of build a greatest hits launch where I look at the emails that we sent to launch the same course. We've already built it once. It's like any other, you know, pro the product is done. I just need to go through the sales cycle. And I built out our sales sequence uh, using past emails and then some of my own editing. So, you know, removing things that don't make any sense. Sometimes it's Frankensteining things together. Sometimes it's taking things out that now that I've, I haven't seen that email in three years, but now I'm looking at it going, Oh, we know how to make, we know how to say that better. I know how to articulate that better. I know what's going to resonate more. So sort of Frankenstein working a bunch of my own stuff, um, in, in, in between to sort of glue all of the, the core pieces from Amy together, run that launch and we, smash our sales records, uh, for, for 30 by 500, uh, that launch while Amy was sick and could not write a single word. And I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, then the question became like, can I do it again? And so we try to launch three to four times a year. So a few months later I tried it again and we hit some great numbers again and Amy was still pretty sick. And I was like, I'm going to keep doing this until you tell me to stop or until we run out of material. Um, and along the way I was like, well, wait a second, I'm just doing this for launches. We've got all this other material that's super good, but we don't send emails consistently when we're not launching, which is a problem that I think everybody who sells, you know, digital stuff online, we know we're supposed to have a newsletter. We know we're supposed to keep it updated with fresh content and new things to keep people, um, not just keep people on like a content treadmill, make sure that, you know, when somebody, gets used to hearing from us and gets value from the new stuff we send them week after week, month after month. It makes the sale make sense because they trust us. The stuff we've given them for free has been really good. So the paid stuff is likely to be even more valuable. Um, and so after I did the second launch, I started going back through our content archive of blog posts and emails that weren't launch related and building out an automated sequence of that. So anytime somebody signs up for a newsletter, they're getting um, what I'm calling a, a newsletter mixtape where I've curated past articles and in some cases edited in Frankenstein and all these other things. I've gone through the curatorial and editorial process to make it so the send time of a given newsletter that goes to our email list is not based on when I send it but instead based on when the subscriber signs up. So if you sign up this week, you get email number one, and then next e week you get email number two. But if my but if your neighbor signs up for my newsletter next week, they get email number one that you got last week in the current week and so on and so forth. And so what happens here is we've got years of content archive that I can turn into a sequence so that every new person who signs up 
uh, is going to get great stuff on a regular basis, which also means that when I run one of my now Frankenstein greatest hits launches again, the they're more familiar with us. They're more familiar with our lessons, our philosophy. They've tried out some of our tools and techniques and realize that they work. And so that gives them a really good reason to want to buy the, the, the full course. Um, and so over the last two years, I've just been kind of like working at this machine, um, where I'm effectively, and I'm still, I'm, I'm writing stuff. Amy has written a handful of things in moments where she feels a bit better. Um, I should say she's been much better in the last year. Um, uh, and in the last like nine months, especially. So she's back to creating new stuff, but it's still, slower than it used to be and producing something consistently every week is impossible for her. But what is possible is for me to have this system that make, that removes the pressure from having to create something new every week so that when she feels well, she can create something really, really great. And then it goes into the, it goes into the system and that system, like I said, last year, uh, in the two years that I've been building that system, we've doubled the business, but doubled revenue with basically no changes to our costs. That's essentially a hundred percent margin for us. And I've done that with almost no new material. I, I think between us, we've maybe written five or six new things. Um, and, and most of them have been me and then me asking Amy, Hey, can you tee up this email? Um, but along the way, sort of learning how to both puppeteer Amy's past work but also refining her work has made me a better writer so I can sit down and write a new original email that's not going to be a, 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 a as good as something that she'd write. But I can get pretty darn close these days to the point where you know if there's something in a sales sequence that I want but she hasn't written, I can write it and be, be close enough that it'll, it'll do the work that that email needs to do while we're launching. Um, and the fact that it all happens on autopilot means now we get to put, now that Amy's getting better, we can put our energy into creating new products, which are again, more revenue, more opportunity to help our customers fill in gaps between other products and things like that would have never been possible, uh, if we hadn't built the system. And I would, I would also say like to a degree, the, the Amy being so sick the last two years was the challenge for me to really think about, well, what, what is my role in this business? You know, I've, I've been the co-teacher for a long time, but when we're not creating new material, what exactly do I do here? And realizing that one of our, the way our strengths are complementary, um, you know, I, I started thinking about us as sort of the recording artist and the producer. Um, I don't think Amy will like this reference, but she's, you know, she's my Eminem and I'm Dr. Dre. Um, uh, you know, the, the, I can take her past work and, and make it even better, um, through this sort of editorial process, but also make it so that the work that was done continues creating value for our, our audience, for our students and for our business long after it was created. Thanks very much for sharing that story. I think, um, people who are familiar with, um, with Amy and with you will be, uh, really enjoy having heard that, uh, and um, I think it's it's so interesting that you and Amy face the same challenges that the people you're teaching face, and that's one of the reasons that you're so good at it. And uh, congratulations not only on to hear that Amy's feeling better, but also on the success that you've had since you've taken this new direction. Um, it's it's really interesting with a business like yours; it succeeds when it works. 
and when people succeed doing it. That's right. And so there's this great kind of feedback effect, not only for you, but for everyone uh, that you reach. Yeah, you know, it's been, it's been, there's a lot of things that I'm um, super grateful for about this business to, to run a business with a friend, um, first and foremost, means that, you know, Amy getting better means I get, I get my partner back, I get my friend back. But we also get this kind of like new tool, like our business just has this different, different shape that we kind of get to relearn how to work together. Um, in this, in this, to, to me anyway, this kind of positive and exciting way, um, our foundation is stronger and the work that we put in can, um, you know, I think the, you know, the dream of an asset based business is that the work that you did in the past is leveraged for work you'll do in the future. Uh, I think we're living that more today than we've ever been able to in the past. And part of that happened because we had this kind of terrible constraint forced upon us. Um, and you know, could have said, well, screw it. I'll just wait for Amy to come back and be better. But a, that w I would have not been a very good partner. Um, but B, I think that would have been not fully deploying our own lessons, which are, you won't ha always have every advantage that you wish you had, but you have to analyze the advantages you do have and use them to the best of your ability. And I think I, I had a moment to be honest and, and try to do that in a way that I hadn't before. And I mean, I appreciate you saying saying what you said. You know, it ma makes me hope that our students will see. Oh, there will be a time when this is going to. I will. I will face a seemingly impossible challenge. I got to go back to fundamentals and look for every advantage I've got and do my best to leverage them. And I may end up in a different place than I intended, but I also may end up in a much better place than I intended. Speaking, which is what happened with us. Speaking of fundamentals, you've just handed me a second uh, segue gift. Um, so we've, we've reached feature length already, but the last, the, we always say for the, the end of these, these podcasts, uh, the view not the, from ground level rather than from 30,000 feet. Uh, and so I was wondering uh, if we could maybe take a little bit of your time to um, address the challenge faced by someone who has an idea for a product. In this case, we'll say specifically given our audience a book. Let's say someone has an idea for a book they'd like to write. What should their next step be? Your next step should be to write down that idea and then stick it in a drawer and forget about it. Because uh, that idea, unless you have done uh, all the things I'm about to say, is, is not helpful to you or your audience. Uh, instead, what I would say is to figure out who you are best suited to create things for. You may think you know who that is, but I would argue that most people, again, articulate it in a way that is, you know, some sort of vague avatar or, you know, people who like X and do Y and are looking to be able to do Z. Um, and again, it's that sort of made up concept that, that is more derived from your idea than from an actual group of people out there. And so the very first thing I, I always encourage folks, and this is straight out of our course, is to think about who are the other professional people, and I'm going to narrow in on professional and I'll explain that in a second, who are the other professional people who do things like what you do, who else has a similar job title, or who would like to do the work that you do, or who 
also professional, hires you to do the work that you do. And within that trifecta, you have a multitude of options. It's not that you need an audience that fulfills all three. Those are all sort of like brainstorming vectors of who out there are you well suited to serve? And the reason I, I, I caveated with a professional audience, it's not that you can't sell to consumers, um, you know, consumers being, you know, the general public, um, you know, the, the, uh, you know, if your idea is like, um, you know, you mentioned there's some folks that listen to lean pub and use lean pub to publish fiction. That's great. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying your fiction is not worthy of readers or buyers, but it is very difficult to reliably create fiction that will sell, um, which is why most people create lots of fiction uh, fairly quickly in the hopes that some of it will sell. Consumer audiences are fickle and it tends to be more of a, a hit-based model. When you're looking for reliability, professional audiences are most likely, not guaranteed, but most likely to buy on value which means they have problems that cost them money or time and therefore money and they view their ability to spend money they have to reclaim that time or energy as worthwhile. That may not be the way you think but if you are a professional, there are people out there who think that way and um, this is one of those rare times where I'll say if, if you, you do not believe that is true, um, you'll either need to believe me or go do some further research on human psychology and business. Um, but that is that is a, a generally fundamental fact with very rare exception. Um, professionals that like like um, K through 12 teachers generally, even though they're professionals, they, it's not that they don't buy on value is they generally don't have money to spend. Restaurant owners sometimes have money to spend, but they generally don't buy on value. They buy on on um, first impressions and, and things along those lines. So a professional audience, either people who do what you do, people who want to do what you do, people who hire what you do. And then I've already given you a bunch of first steps. Um, but the, the last piece I'll give you right here is to then go out and help those people. Meet them where they are on the wide world of the internet we have access to. Figure out where they hang out and talk. And don't go there to sell. Don't go there to pitch. Don't go there to tell them, I'm trying to come up with my next great product idea. Fill out my survey. Or would you like me to create X, Y, or Z? That's all. Those are all your job to do. It's not their job to tell you. Your job is to go there, watch those people talk, and, and understand. Take the time to get in their heads and understand why is that person coming on the internet to ask that question. What don't they know? What could they know? What don't they have access to? What don't they understand? What is wasting their time? And I'll, I'll, I'll small plug here. That sounds easier than it really is if you are not practiced at it. And Amy invented a research process that we call Sales Safari. It's at the heart of 30 by 500. Until a couple of years ago, the only way to learn it was inside 30 by 500. We now have a standalone Sales Safari 101 course at shop.stackingthebricks.com where you get to learn by watching us do it. Um, a lot of people will go find a forum or email list or subreddit or, or whatever of their audience talking to look at it and say, I don't see anything. And that's just the blindness of your own knowledge and not taking the time to understand that those people have problems and there's a very strong chance that you can help them. If you can find people who have problems that want help with those problems and you have the ability to help them, that's everything you need to build the foundation so that when you figure out what book they want to buy, what book they want to read, 
you're not going to be plucking it out of that idea that I had you stuff in the drawer. Mm-hmm. It's going to be based on the pattern of what you saw coming up over and over and over or the thing you see people week after week wasting time or money trying to do or not doing or the thing that happens repetitively. Therefore, it can be automated and maybe become a, a, a software product, whatever it might be. Um, but since we're talking about a book and knowledge, what is the thing that is out there? And, and I'll, I'll say one last thing. Uh, about this is if, if you're following this sort of steps in your head and wondering or worrying, well, what if the thing I, I think they need help with, there's already books out there for, well, I've got good news for you. Most books out there aren't very good. <laughs> and, and you have two options. One is to say, Hey, did you know that these other books are out there? Or, Hey, these other books are out there. I read them. Here's what my takeaways are, but here's my personal take on either why that is incomplete or why there's a better, more current, modern way or whatever it might be. The fact that those books out there is not a negative signal that you should not write your book. In fact, it's a very positive signal that other people out there realize that these problems exist. They just did not do uh, probably or maybe they did do a great job um, of, of writing a book just because they wrote a book out there about that topic or problem doesn't mean it's the definitive one forever for everyone for every situation you still have the ability to write from your perspective from your experiences and to do it in a way that based on your own research of that audience serves them better than the the stuff that's already out there so don't let other stuff being out there be it be a mental roadblock of you know my idea is not new and original um, in, in the world of the, the internet and, and, um, planet earth and the universe originality is, is not the game here. It's understanding them better, meeting them where they are better, helping them solve their problems better, getting them a win better. Um, and, and I'll offer a, a, a book. If that sounds like something that you want to get better at, there's an incredible book by a woman named Kathy Sierra, who is a, a mentor of Amy and mine, um, called badass, uh, that, uh, Kathy and her partner created the headfirst programming books for O'Reilly back in the nineties. And headfirst was the first set of books that took a completely different approach to teaching programming Java at the time originally than ever before. Instead of it being a book of knowledge and commands and syntax, it was a book of how to use your brain with these tools because it was all about what is the programming language enable the programmer to accomplish. No book had ever been written that way before. And truthfully, most programming books still aren't written that way. But the ones that are, some of our students have written them, um, continue to be incredibly, incredibly well sold, especially as self-published books. They're not the kind of thing that a publisher is going to pick up because a publisher wants to sell a big fat book, um, not a 90 page, I understand your problem and here's how to solve it book. Um, but reading Kathy's book, I think, is one of the best resources on, on, on the earth um, and definitely on the Internet for learning how to really get into your your customer's head and think about how your product, in this case, your book, will make them better in some measurable way. Um, it's an amazing book itself. It's a lot of fun to read. Kathy has a very unique writing and, and illustrated style. Um, so I, I, I'm willing to bet you'll have fun reading it. But if you read it and and um, don't learn something, send me an email and I'll buy the book from you so I can give it to somebody else. Well, thank you. Thank you, Alex, for sharing all of that. Um, I've learned a lot from this 
interview, and I'm sure everyone listening has as well. And I, that that's really wonderful advice for someone who's trying to achieve independence or you know pay down that mortgage. Uh, if you want to come up with a project, one thing to consider is to put that idea that you already had in a drawer and maybe go out and find a community of people and learn about them who might have a need that you can address specifically. Um, and thank you very much for sharing the story about your, your uh, business with Amy and for Indy Hall and about Indy Hall and about Philadelphia as well. And uh, yeah, thanks again for taking the time to do this interview. I really appreciated it. And uh, I'm sure all our listeners will as well. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I, I would love to hear from anybody who is listening along is interested in you know, hearing or, or learning more. Um, if you're ever in Philadelphia, I have an open invitation to come by Indy Hall. If I'm in Philadelphia, uh, there is a near 100% chance that I'm at Indy Hall. But if I'm not, I've got an amazing team and an amazing community of people for you to meet as well. So uh, swing on through and say hi to us in Old City. Thanks very much. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter Podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.